Welcome to the fifth supplemental lecture of the semester. This supplemental lecture will discuss chapter six, culture and context. Hard to believe that we are already one third of the way through the semester. Before we get into the content for this week, a quick reminder and some housekeeping. Thursday, February 15th, that would be our class period. If you've already been to that class, you know that the great Marcy Hero was stepping in for me, discussing chapter six, culture and context in class. We also had quiz number two in class. Now, if you're listening to this before the quiz, just make sure that you check out the study guide on D2L for that quiz. The quiz is worth 40 points and the study guide is posted on D2L. Additionally, on Thursday, your initial discussion board post for the week is due by 11.59 p.m. And then on Sunday, February 18th, your discussion board reply post will be due by 11.59 p.m. Next week, we'll be discussing talking and listening, which is chapter seven, and we'll have topic check number four, which is due February 25th. All right, so if you haven't checked out the, you haven't been to class yet, if you haven't listened to that in-class lecture, I'm going to tell you what we will be talking about during that lecture. If you have, I'm just gonna remind you of a few things that we talked about. But remember, we define culture as being comprised of beliefs, attitudes, values, and traditions shared by a group of people. It teaches beliefs, values, norms, and rules. Now keep that in mind because that'll come up when we discuss ethnocentrism here in a second. It's not limited to regional or geographic delineations. For example, we may have cultures based on our family or each individual school has a culture. Each individual class within a school will have a culture as well. There may be co-cultures and micro-cultures within these larger cultures. And the other thing to note too is that culture provides us with collective self-esteem. And that collective self-esteem can be positive or negative depending on four different factors. For example, if we're part of a culture or group that we feel is negatively looked upon by society, we're going to have a negative collective self-esteem and therefore our membership in the group may be a bad portion of our self-esteem or it may erode our self-esteem a little bit or it just may not add to our sense of self in any way. But if we're part of a culture or organization that we think society looks at favorably and we're also an important part of that culture or group or organization, then that's going to create positive collective self-esteem which will then lead to uh, that particular group, culture, organization, whatever it might be, building into our self-image and our overall positivity about ourselves. So let's talk now about the negative parts of culture. We've talked a little bit about the positive ones in the in-class lecture, and we begin with stereotypes. Now, stereotypes are defined as a set of beliefs about the personal attributes of a social group. Now, stereotypes can be positive or negative, and they can be accurate and inaccurate. However, most of the time we're trying to guard against negative and or inaccurate stereotypes. A couple of different types of stereotypes to discuss. There are cultural stereotypes, which are beliefs possessed by cultural groups about another social group. So if you're the part of, or you are a part of a particular culture, you may have stereotypes against another culture at large. This is something that is relatively common when we look at geographic cultures where we might place judgments or stereotypes against those from other cultures. This is also common in terms of religious cultures as well. So cultures surrounding certain world religions. 
then personal stereotypes are those held by a specific individual, and they don't reflect a shared belief with that individual's cultural group at large. Now, these stereotypes can be learned through a number of different methods. We can either pick up on them ourselves, we can maybe pick up on those stereotypes through media consumption or through a friend of ours, through other socialization groups, and so forth. So personal stereotypes are really person to person, exactly how they sound, whereas cultural stereotypes are often held by a culture at large. And again, stereotypes don't always have to be negative, nor do they always have to be incorrect. But stereotypes are a way for our mind to categorize certain things, and it's basically a function of an assumption. And we talked about how important assumptions are for our brain to focus and for our brain to basically get through on a day-to-day -day basis, but we should be wary of stereotypes as a form of assumption because honestly, a lot of stereotypes can be lazy or as I mentioned already, they can be incorrect. Now, our cultures also provide normative views. And so I mentioned when we first kicked this off, we talked about cultures kind of defining rules, regulations, and norms. And because of this, we tend to view our own culture as generally being correct or right or the most moral culture or the most ethically correct culture and so forth. Part of this is because these rules, regulations, and norms, these are put in place oftentimes by scolding or chiding or correcting those that step outside the boundaries of these rules, regulations, and norms. And so if you're taught from childhood to never do thing X, and then you see someone maybe from a different culture doing thing X, you're going to make a value-based judgment on that person. This whole thing is called ethnocentrism, which is defined as the degree to which an individual views the world from their own culture's perspective. So while you might have been taught from a very young age that thing X was a bad thing to do, someone from a different culture might have been taught that thing X is a crucially important thing to do on a regular basis. Now, sometimes, you know, even seemingly small examples of this can come up. For example, ethnocentrism comes up in terms of how different cultures cook their pasta. If you know anyone that is of Italian descent, they've obviously got very fixed views on that if they're cook, if they're uh, handy in the kitchen, whereas other cultures don't have those views of cooking pasta and might instead say stir fry the pasta instead of cooking it in a traditional or more traditional Italian method. So this is one example of ethnocentrism is maybe someone from Italy thinking that someone from Japan is preparing noodles in a completely incorrect way. Now, ultimately, in order to combat ethnocentrism, we really need to look at things from a non-judgmental point of view. It's important to kind of dispatch of our own culture's preconceptions and instead look at things in a non-judgmental way. Because otherwise, if we don't, this ethnocentrism can often be accompanied by feelings of dislike or mistrust or hate for cultures that we deem inferior because they're not doing what we were taught from a very young age to do, or vice versa, of course. So it's always important to kind of be mindful of potential ethnocentrism as you're evaluating other cultures. This is particularly important if you plan to travel the world. Your interpersonal relationships as you travel 
are oftentimes defined by your own culture. And again, we're not just talking about necessarily regional cultures, but also we talk about this in terms of religious cultures as well, or familial cultures, or you can even look at it in terms of just how you grew up or socioeconomic status as, as well. So if you have someone that grew up on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, talking with someone on the higher end of the socioeconomic spectrum, that ethnocentrism and some of those stereotypes that we talked about earlier also can creep into our interactions. Now I did want to check out an example of ethnocentrism. So here is an example of Canadian broadcaster Don Cherry. Now Don Cherry was a longtime commentator on Hockey Night in Canada, and he is Canadian, very much so. But here you'll hear him talking about the various different Russian players coming over and how he doesn't necessarily like their behavior, and he feels like they should, in his words, you know, if they don't like it, go back to where they came from. Here it is. But let's talk about they're getting that Provia Burry, whatever his name is. Pavel if they could Burry. just keep him away for another couple of weeks, it would be all right. He only wants a million bucks. Now let's get back to the Russians some more. How about McGilley fires his manager, Don Meehan, because Don Meehan says, look, if you go out and play pretty good, they'll give you a contract. He fires him. Then you've got Makarov. Sulker's getting $375,000. Biggest joke of all. They can't play him. They don't know what to do with them. You've got Krutov out there making $375,000. Suing the uh, Vancouver Ducks for $700,000. I'll tell you something. Who else? There was one other guy I wanted again. Can't think of him. Larry Onoff. He's getting Lomack the Lomackin's doing well in Philadelphia. Lomackin. Yeah, he's playing one good game when he gets up there. I can say it again. If these guys don't like it here, they come over here, give them a break. They were earning for their apartment. If they don't like it here, the foreigners don't like it here, go back where they came from. All right, so you hear that. If the foreigners don't like it here, go back where they came from. That is a clear example of ethnocentrism, and it kind of lends credence to the idea that Don Cherry, in this video at least, feels that the Canadian way is the one right way of doing things, or perhaps the North American way is the one right way of doing things. All right, so I want to talk very briefly about Edward Hall's guidelines. Now, Edward Hall was not a communications scholar. He was instead a cultural anthropologist and is sometimes called uh, kind of the father of that particular discipline. But he dabbled in intercultural communication as well, as do most anthropologists. And he made contributions to this field, including some base guidelines. One of the things that Hall discovered was that the very base of a culture is often defined by the context of communication. So whether you have a low context culture in which verbal messages are very explicit, you're not using euphemisms, you're very direct with other people, you're not hinting, not beating around the bush, and then you have high context communication cultures. These are cultures that rely heavily on gestures, on tone of voice, and so forth. These are the types of cultures that might use euphemisms or might use ways of talking around sensitive subjects. So that's one of the first things Hall found. But these guidelines that he created included the following, and I'm just going to run through the bullet points for you here. He said it's better to focus on interactions, so your interaction with personal people versus general observations of culture. This is very important because especially when studying regional-based cultures or being immersed in regional-based cultures, everyone is going to be a little bit different because we are all individuals. He also said that you don't have to know everything about a culture to know something. So if you observe a certain behavior, 
being repeated over and over again. You don't have to know everything about the culture at large to be able to make an inference from that particular behavior and respect that behavior. He also mentioned that it's important to learn a community's rules, both generally speaking because it informs on culture and because it's important for interactions. And he said it is important, this kind of goes back to the first one I mentioned, to emphasize the individual. Because we are all different, we're not going to act the same within a given culture. So it's important to emphasize that individuality. So from cultural anthropology, it kind of developed and then we get different cultures approaching relationships differently as well. And Geert Hofstede really led the research on this as he studied IBM survey data. And specifically, he was looking at how individuals approach work across many different cultures. There were six things that he kind of found out, and it's basically six continuums that he set up. There is low versus high power distance cultures. There's individualism versus collectivism. There's masculinity versus femininity. That doesn't sound what you might think it sounds like. We'll talk about that here in a second. There's low versus high uncertainty avoidance, long-term versus short-term orientation, and indulgence versus restraint. Now, I don't have the last two on their own slides, but I do want to touch on them briefly. So long-term versus short-term orientation. This has to do with whether a culture is more interested in delayed gratification versus instant gratification. And one of the more interesting things that's been studied in recent years is how often people back into parking spots. If you back into a parking spot and there's no rule or regulation, uh, for or against backing into a parking spot, it suggests that you're more willing to put the car in reverse and do the hard part up front so that you can drive out more easily when you exit. And likewise, for those that pull forward into a parking spot and then back out of it when they leave, these are people that are more interested in that gratification coming up front versus that long-term orientation. Likewise, you might have certain cultures that are more worried about how they're leaving things for their children and grandchildren, and other cultures are more just concerned about getting by or maybe fairly unconcerned about what happens to their grandchildren or great-grandchildren. That doesn't necessarily need to be regionally based either. Uh, that can be also socioeconomically based, although the parking spot dilemma, as I mentioned, that is a little bit more regionally based where a lot of East Asian cultures, it is much, much, much more common to back into parking spots than it is to drive uh, basically front fender first into a parking spot. And then indulgence versus restraint. I think we see this most often in terms of certain cultures regarding different religions throughout the world. There are a lot of religions that are set up based on that idea of restraint, and some are based on the idea of indulgence, and so there is a fair bit of ethnocentrism when those uh, restraint-based religious cultures come into contact with indulgence-based religious cultures, and there can be some clashing of heads there just a little bit. So did just want to talk about those two continuums, but now let's break down some of the others. So we'll start with individualistic versus collectivist cultures. Individualistic cultures place an emphasis on self-reliance. So pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, perception of the world through your own viewpoint. This is very much kind of a quality that is ascribed to most of 
the United States, whereas collectivist cultures place emphasis on the needs of community and a group, and they have a perception of the world through the group's viewpoint as a whole. They're far more concerned about what's better for the group versus looking out for oneself. Now, again, you don't want to make sweeping generalizations because socioeconomic status can impact this as well. You're far more likely to not be as concerned with the well-being of the group if you yourself are in a position where you're suffering, whereas it's a little bit easier if you're in a good spot as a person to have a mindset that's a little bit more collectivistic. Um, the masculine and feminine cultures I talked about earlier doesn't necessarily mean there's a male-dominated or female-dominated uh, landscape here. But in masculine cultures, gender roles are distinct, and we see a lot of what we call hegemonic masculinity. Hegemony is simply influence or authority over others. So these type of cultures are male-dominated. It's typically the males making decisions, whether that be in a given household or a government structure or a group structure. A feminine culture, power structures are generally blurred, and it's socially acceptable for men and women to both conduct the same tasks. Now, this might not be the case across the board, but you look at especially some indigenous cultures uh, that tend towards being feminine cultures. Even then, there's still a little bit of a division of labor in those cultures across male and female roles. But generally speaking, those particular cultures, it might have been socially acceptable for both men and women to do a particular task. Whereas in masculine cultures, Oftentimes, it is not socially acceptable for a male to do what is stereotypically a female uh, female's work and vice versa. Also, feminine culture, uh, you're seeing a lot more of a flat power structure. So the power structure itself is maybe not as regimented, and therefore you don't have one person that has power over another person who has power over another person. Maybe it's a little bit more of a flat organizational structure like what you might have in certain business organizations. The other two continuums that we'll talk about are uncertainty rejecting versus uncertainty accepting cultures and low versus high power distance cultures. Now, as far as uncertainty is concerned, just mentioned last week that uncertainty is a bad thing for us. We mentioned it last week. We mentioned it two weeks ago. We mentioned it during the first class period. But there are cultures that do embrace uncertainty or are at least accepting of this. And I think the biggest example of this might be cultures with uh, startup businesses. So startup tech businesses, for example, far more willing to accept uncertainty. They're willing to change or take risks. Part of that is because the organization isn't quite as large. Uh, they, however, may be hesitant to ask questions, which is a bad thing because they're so accepting of uncertainty that they don't ask where they should be or what they should be doing. And so this can be a negative, but it can also be a positive in that they're not so concerned about uncertainty and that doesn't keep them from uh, making jumps or leaps like you would see in other cultures. Whereas if you reject uncertainty as a culture, you might be reluctant to change or take risks. We see this from very large organizations, I think, in the United States. So insurance companies would be a great example of something like this. Also, the healthcare field, generally reluctant to take those risks out of necessity. And a lot of questions are asked in order to reduce uncertainty. It's a matter of knowing exactly what needs to be done at all times. 
But the downside of this is they might not be willing to take those leaps to kind of make those uh, blind steps of faith, if you will, that they would be in uncertainty accepting cultures. Low power distance cultures have that flat organizational structure that are, is consistent also with a lot of feminine cultures. The members see each other as equals. They're willing to question rules. This happens a lot of times with certain friend groups, but also with various businesses and organizations. You also have high power distance cultures. These are cultures where, you know, let's say if your boss's boss comes into the room, it's understood that you don't speak to that person. There is an explicit power structure and oftentimes questions of superiors are discouraged. And I don't mean questions of clarification, but more questions like, why are we doing this? So think about this in the scope of a household. Most households have that high power distance culture. A parent tells a child to do something, the child asks why, and the parent might say, because I told you so, or they give a different reason, but the parent's decision is pretty much final. Uh, not many parenting styles have to do with low power distance cultures, where if a kid asks why they have to do something, the parent might say, well, that's a good point. I'm not sure why you have to do something. Let's go back to the drawing board there. So again, it's very, very dependent on context here. And many of us experience both low power and high power distance cultures within our lives as we move through them. All right, I want to talk very briefly about the idea of face and face negotiation theory. This was something hypothesized back in the 80s by Stella Ting Tumi out of Stanford uh, in Northern California. But basically, face negotiation theory explains the importance of face within interpersonal interactions. What are we talking about when we talk about face? Well, face is the standing or position we have in the eyes of others. Think about it. If I ask you a question about face, think about it in terms of the term saving face. If you're saving your own face, you have some concern for how you appear in the eyes of others. So this has to do with culture quite a bit as well, because there are cultures that are concerned about self-face. And again, I think a lot of people look at the U.S. and see our culture in the U.S. as mostly a self-face culture where we're concerned for our face above others. There are cultures, however, that are out there that are other face cultures. So they have concern for another person's face. They're more concerned with making sure that other person isn't embarrassed or comes off well than they are concerned about their own face. And this certainly comes up not only in American cultures, but other cultures as well. And I think it's highly context dependent. In a work context, for example, we might have more other face than we do in a personal context. And then there's mutual face, which is concerned for both interactants and the relationship. So making sure that both people are capable of putting their best face forward and also making sure that the relationship is on better terms as a result of that. So I'm not gonna dive too deeply into face negotiation theory because you can get really, really into the weeds, but I just want you to know that when we talk about face, think of it like saving face. Think about it as that concept. And when you're in an interaction with someone else, when you're in an interpersonal interaction with someone else, what is the culture that you grew up with or your background or the culture of that particular moment telling you to do? Is it telling you to save your face, save the other person's face, or try to find a mutual outcome where all faces are more or less preserved? And then finally, a brief note regarding cultural intelligence, which is defined as the degree to which an individual is capable of communicating competently in varying cultural situations. 
There's four types of cultural intelligence. I'll just run through these very briefly. There's cognitive cultural intelligence, which is the degree to which you have cultural knowledge, not of only of your own culture, but others. There's motivational cultural intelligence, which is more or less the degree to which you're motivated to adapt to different cultural environments. There's metacognitive cultural intelligence, which is basically the extent to which you're aware of intercultural interactions and trying to be a little bit more fluid in terms of having these interpersonal relationships with people from different cultures. Again, not just regional cultures, uh, but also in terms of organizational cultures, group cultures, etc. And then there's behavioral cultural intelligence. And this is simply the degree to which you behave in a manner consistent with what you know about other cultures. So are you trying to fit in? Are you doing something for the benefit of the other culture when you're immersed in another culture? Or are you still basically acting out the role of your own personal culture there? So those are four types of cultural intelligence. That does it for the content of this particular supplemental lecture. Once again, a reminder, Thursday, February 15th, quiz number two in class, that is worth 40 points. Your initial discussion board post is also due by 11.59 p.m. that night via D2L. Sunday, February 18th, your discussion board reply post is due by 11.59 p.m. via D2L. And next week, we'll be discussing chapter seven, which is talking and listening. The only thing to have on your radar for next week is topic check number four, that is due February 25th at 11.59 p.m. via D2L. All right, that's it for this week. I'm sorry I won't be able to see y'all uh, in class this week, but hopefully I can bring back a couple of big wins against the Canadian national team as a result of our effort. So everyone have a great rest of your week, and we'll be back with you about seven days from now.